Welcome back to The White Bikini. Joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Fanton. How are you, Nicholas? I'm doing great, Marie. It's good to be with you again. In this episode, we will discuss Fan Thai Kim Fuk, or she's also known, and after this podcast, I won't refer to her ever again, as Napalm Girl, which refers to the horrible yet iconic photograph that was taken of her in South Vietnam on June 8th, 1972, by the AP photographer, Nick Oot, and shows her at nine years of age running naked on a road after being severely burned by the South Vietnamese napalm attack. And Nick, I'm sure you've seen that photograph. Yes, it's haunting. It's it's absolutely disturbing, just the, the sheer terror on her face as she runs down that road, as you said, completely naked, her skin dripping from her body. It, it's It's really horrible to see. And there was a big talk at the time if they were going to run the photographs, but the papers and the press were insistent. And from my memory, I don't remember, I am the same era as her, so I don't have a lot of memories of the early 70s Vietnam. My memory is more the fall of Saigon. But I do have an understanding at the time that was very controversial to run the photograph especially of a young child and especially of a young girl. Yeah, I'm sure there were some very difficult editorial decisions that had to be made because, you know, it's a young girl, she's completely naked and she is, uh, as I said, as I said before, her skin is dripping from her body. So on so many levels, it represented uh, some very difficult imagery for Western audiences to, to, to witness. And when I started to do research for the podcast, I really wasn't sure what I was going to unearth, but she's lived a very full, thoughtful, and inspiring life in spite of the circumstances at which she started. I'd like to start going over her childhood in Vietnam. Her and her family were residents in South Vietnam, and as we discussed, that photograph on June 8th, 1972, which is obviously just the passing of the 50th anniversary. The South Vietnamese planes dropped napalm bomb on Triang Bang, which had been attacked and occupied by North Vietnamese forces. Kim and a group of civilians were fleeing from temple to the safety of the South Vietnamese held positions. The Vietnam Air Force pilot mistook the group for enemy soldiers and diverted to attack. The bomb killed two of Kim's cousins and two other villagers. She received three degree bur- third degree burns after her clothing was burned right off of her body. This is a little more graphic, of course. She was wrapped in a soldier's rain poncho. And this is a little disturbing, but she was placed in the morgue because doctors didn't think she had any chance of survival but she credited Nick Ute with saving her. He insisted and grabbed her and took her and other injured children to get the proper care at a hospital following the 1972 blast. She credited him for saving her life and he took her as we discussed. Now, 50 years later, which is obviously last month, she has declared she is no longer a victim of war. I am not Napalm Girl. Now I'm a friend, a helper, a grandmother, and I'm a survivor calling out for peace. I love it. I love it. I love it. I think it's it's such a story of redemption. And I think deep down, that's what we all want. We all want to believe that in spite of the horrors or despite of the most difficult of circumstances, we can rise above the pain and the anguish and the suffering and find ourselves in a better place in life. And I think 
That is such that is such a powerful story. When I read the article that I am not Napalm Girl, I thought, you know, that says it all. She's not going to be fined by something that happened 50 years ago. It can be part of her, but it's not who she is and it's not going to define the rest of her life. And I think that's an important distinction that can be made. You know, some, I think sometimes when we try to distance ourselves from the past or from grief or from trauma, we feel that we are losing part of ourselves. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. You know, it's 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 healthy to recognize what pain and trauma has been in our lives but not to identify solely with pain and trauma. It's a very difficult thing to do. And I agree. And I think that she's doing it right. She processed a lot, a lot of times passed. So I think she dealt with the emotional trauma and physical and is going to move on to the next phase of her life, which I think is such a positive statement. I agree. And it sounds like she has, she's begun the process. I think we've just simply gone back because of the anniversary to commemorate that instance. But it sounds like she's a woman that has moved on with her life and is doing, is living her life according to her own standards, which is a beautiful thing. Her early adulthood was a little complicated. She was removed from her university as a young adult while she was studying medicine and used as a propaganda, propaganda symbol by the communist government of Vietnam. I think it's very interesting that in 1986, she was granted permission to continue her studies in Cuba. And that's where she met her future husband. And in 1992, she married. On the way to their honeymoon in Moscow, they left the plane during a refueling stop in Newfoundland and asked for political asylum in Canada, which was granted. And I just find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, because the thing we have to sometimes keeping considerations that when these individuals or even a couple seek seek um seek asylum po seek political asylum thank you i drew a blank there for a second when they seek political asylum uh, there is the potential for repercussions for their families so whether it's her family back in vietnam or his family back in Cuba, reprisal is a part of how you keep people in line. If you make it easy for people to leave a totalitarian system, then they will leave. But if they know that their families may have to face hardships, it's a very difficult decision. And I think that that part has to be taken in consideration, you know, as part of the totality of her experience during that period of her life. In 1996, she met the two surgeons that were going to save her life with surgeries. And the following year, she became a Canadian citizen. In 2015, it was reported that she was receiving laser treatment provided free of charge, which I think is fabulous, at a hospital in Miami to reduce the scarring on her left arm and back. I think and I No, I was just about to say, I just think that is such a beautiful thing because she does sound like just a really beautiful person. And I think to, to, have a, to have less reminding of that part of her life or, or reduced memories or fewer memories, if, uh, if you will, I, I think that's how we heal. We're always gonna have scars, but sometimes, you know, if we reduce the scars a little bit, it'll help the healing process. And she did, she's been quoted as saying, which I thought was very touching, that she fought for my life. And after more than a year and 17 surgeries, she made it. And that's when she really learned the hardship was just beginning. She didn't want to carry those 
ugly, painful scars. And she was concerned as a young woman, and rightly so, that she would never have a boyfriend, ever get married, or ever have a normal life. And it was a very low point for her. I think it's only natural. Most of us, most of us, even if other people were interested in us, I think we would struggle to ever feel whole or ever feel human or ever feel deserving of love. Let's be honest. You know, I, I think a lot of us, if we were in her position, the idea that another person would love us, I think would seem strange and we would be suspicious. Um, and, and that carries its own pain and, and, and emotional struggle and, and, and grief. So she, she's, she's, she's a tough lady. She's a tough, tough lady. And I think, you know, hopefully one day we will perhaps get a chance to, for her to sit down and maybe give us a full um, insight into her life. But from what we can see from the outside, she, she's tough. She's a fighter. And now she's moving into the era of being a grandmother. So I think the next level will bring much more joy to her life. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a time of transition. And I, and I think perhaps, you know, being able to share her experiences with that next generation, I think that's a beautiful thing. I think her legacy in the next 10 years is going to even change what she's been talking about today. I hope so. I would love to read her memoir one day. I'd love for her to sit down and, and discuss what it was like and after the Americans left. Because, you know, as people live in the West, specifically as Americans, if America doesn't have an interest there, it's as if those people don't exist. Um, so it would be very interesting to me for her to discuss the details of her life after the Americans left, after Saigon fell, and how she she evolved through the rest of her life. Because technically, she did not leave Vietnam till 1986 to go to Cuba. Saigon fell in 74, 75. So where I'm curious what happened during those 10 years of her life. She needs to write a biography, needs to come on and be our guest. I would love that. Do you think... Uh, you can use your producer skills and make that happen. Absolutely. Nick, do you like nachos? Of course I like nachos. I'm assuming you like vegetarian. Um, it's my preference, but you know, I'll, I'll dabble in some, uh, some nachos with either chicken or ground beef. How about cheesesteak egg rolls? Absolutely. I know you're not a drinker, but if you, at any time in your life when you did drink, what's your favorite drink? Hmm. Great question. Uh, so I think deep down inside, I'm a, I'm a little old Jewish lady from Long, Long Island because I love Long Island iced tea. Um, that is so 1990s. I know. I know. I, I just love it. I just, I, it, to me, it was delicious. But if I was going to pretend to be cool, I would say uh, vodka and cranberry juice. I like Long Island iced teas, but they catch up with you quickly. They do, because all that sugar, all you know is that you're drinking something that tastes like lemonade, and then maybe 10 minutes later, you realize, no, nope, that's not <laughs> lemonade. You have Long Island iced tea goggles. I do, I do. And uh, believe me, I've spent many a night regretting the decision <laughs> to get an extra glass of it. I miss the 90s and 2000s. Well, for our listeners near the Philadelphia area, please stop by the Springfield Ale House Delco that's located on Sprawl Road in Springfield, Delaware County. They have nachos, cheesesteak, egg rolls, great sandwiches, but they have the best drinks in Delaware County. So please stop by and patronize our sponsor and you will not be disappointed. Amen to that. 
I think we should do a show up there. Wow. I know. <laughs> It'd be like, are we going to do like, a, are we going to like go from podcast to doing like a morning zoo? Am I going to have to get like <laughs> all sorts of like weird sounding instruments? <laughs> I will drink a green apple teeny martini and I'll have two of them. Okay. Uh, you can have, you can have a third one for me. How's that? Cheers. Amen. Recently with approaching the 50th anniversary of the napalm dropping in Vietnam, on top of everything she has done in her life, she escorted 236 refugees from Russia in Ukraine on a flight from Warsaw to Canada. And the most beautiful thing is on the plane was the photograph of her on it. Wow. So she's actually um, stepping into uh, the public sphere and she's, for, you know, I, I guess what you, I, I think you just have to call her humanitarian at this point of her life in terms of what she's been doing. They etched the photograph on the plane that was flying refugees from the city of Regina to the capital province of, I don't want to say it incorrectly, Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. She's a Canadian citizen and she wants to say that her story and work for refugees is going to be her message for peace. And with her husband, she traveled from Toronto to board the humanitarian flight. And I am startled and deeply moved by that. No, I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, so many of us, when, you know, war or conflict or disaster strikes, we want to head the other way. And I think that's quite rational. Some people, they run into the flames. They run into the bombs. And clearly she's one of those people. And we need those people in the world. We need those people that can do the difficult, scary things. The refugees are mostly women and children from across Ukraine or among thousands of Ukrainians that Canada has provided humanitarian visas in light of the Russian invasion of their country. And almost 5.5 million have registered with humanitarian organizations in Europe across to the UN, according to the UN. No, that's, a which, lot, that's a lot of help that people need. And let's be honest, we're not following the Ukrainian war anymore. I'm not. No, people have tuned out. Uh, and this is this is the way life is in the United States. Um, everything is just another thing on TV. And after a while, if it's not as interesting as the previous episode, then we lose sight of it and it's no longer relevant in our lives. I don't, I don't even know if for me personally, that's it. Every week I am bombarded today in Philadelphia alone. There was four children shot in North Philadelphia. That's every really day, I mean, every day something is replaced, not on a weekly basis. Now it's a daily, almost hourly basis. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think we, as human beings, we have a capacity for tragedy. And I, you know, over the last few years, you know, I think COVID definitely filled up that, that capacity for trauma and grief and suffering, plus all the polit political tensions that exists in our country. And then on top of that, we come out of COVID or the worst part of COVID and Russia invades Ukraine and America is being plagued by mass shootings, even as children are now out of school. So, you know, it's it's not that we don't care. It's it's more of a statement about being human beings and being human beings where we have limits. We have limits to the things that we can do and the amount that we can feel. We're saturated now. And I think after a certain point, you start not to be able to process. I would agree with that. I'd agree with that. I think we, we there's just only so much you can take. And it's not that you don't care or you're a bad person. It's just that you just have no more 
uh, pain to feel or concern to give. And, and even if you wanted to, you couldn't, you know, you reach an exhaust, exhaustion point. And Fan couldn't even stop with Ukraine. She has spoken out regarding the shootings in Uvalde, Texas, and she's been, her quote, which I think is absolutely beautiful. I cannot speak for the families in Uvalde, Texas, but I think showing the world what the aftermath of a gun rampage truly looks like can deliver the awful reality. We must face this violence head on, and the first step is to look at it. Yeah, I agree with I agree with the sentiment, but the problem in America, in, and this episode is not about guns in America, because we could probably do a dozen episodes about guns and the gun problem in America. And I think I've, I've evolved somewhat on that discussion point. And I, I'm going to say it's not that I think Americans don't necessarily care about guns. I don't think, I think that's an oversimplification and a misidentification of the problem. I think there are two very stark worldviews as to the potential solutions to mass shootings. On one hand, you have people that I think correctly have identified that a key component of mass shootings is the prevalence and ease of access of guns. But you have, we- we've discussed this. And, but the, on the other, high, the other side of the equation, you have people who are convinced that the problem is that you don't have enough people, good guys with a gun, uh, I guess is the statement. You don't have enough good guys with guns out there. So the solution is that you actually need more guns. But I also think what she was saying is just like her photo, people need to see the truth as horrible as it is. I agree with that. But, you know, like I said, I, I don't want to monopolize the discussion of her life with guns and with the discussion about guns in America. Thank I, you. I would, I would be shocked if the problem is that Americans don't know that we have a gun problem or, or how tragic the gun problem is. Like if you saw Sandy Hook and you weren't moved, then you're a psychopath. Uh, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. But well, I think I champion. I I do want to say just one last point, and that I do champion what she's doing. Are you done? Maybe. I think some of the point is also because of the videos that have come out of Uvalde that have been posted online. So I think it's the first conversation of actually seeing the horror versus imagining what could have actually what actually was happening. I do agree with you that if Sandy Hook did not change this country, I don't know that anything will in the immediate future. No, no, I agree. But I guess the conversation is more the horrible images. I don't like to see them and I don't overwatch the news, but I do feel as an American, as a human being, and I consider myself a humanist, I have a responsibility to be tapped in for at least an hour a day to understand what is happening. I don't like this constant set, constant sense of distraction that everyone needs also. I don't think it's healthy. I think we need to look at things head on. That's true, but I, I, you know, there's something, I don't remember if it was Lee Atwater or someone, a major Republican operative who made the observation that if there was a Fox News and right-wing media, broadcast media, to the extent that which it exists today, if it had existed during Vietnam, we would be in the same sort of paralyzed situation. We'd be polarized by our differences to the extent that we're paralyzed to make changes. And I think that's kind of where we are, where we have brave people like Kim 
stepping forward and making the argument that these things are horrible and you need to lean in and see what's going on and you need to understand the pain and suffering that human beings are experiencing. But I think we experience, we are currently experiencing pain and suffering and grief and information and misinformation and disinformation through very distorted lenses. And I wonder what you think about that, that, you know, had there been a Fox News, a pro-Vietnam War Fox News type infrastructure during the 1970s, especially under Nixon, would those images have affected us as much? I think they would have. I think the, well, Vietnam was the first war, as we know, was televised. It was televised on the nightly news. And of course, back in the 60s, early 70s, the nightly news was 3, 6, and 10. So I do think that was the first time that America was able to leave, and we've discussed this very often, that post-World War II bubble. And suddenly it wasn't okay for their children to be fighting because no one really understood what the war was in Vietnam. I think I disagree with you. Interesting. I do. Okay, what, what, what points... Would you identify as points of disagreement? Well, I mean, I just think that the Vietnam War was somewhat televised. That's not, my point is not necessarily that it wasn't televised. It wasn't communicated to Americans. It's the fact that more or less the news told the war using the facts and the facts were ugly. It's kind of like the facts around, um, I don't know, the, 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 the crazy COVID medications. The facts are that most of that stuff didn't work. It didn't really help people. But if you have a countervailing narrative, if you had like a Fox News, as I said, that was making the pro-Vietnam War argument, would it have made a difference? Would she have just, would would she have been, would her character have been assassinated by a Tucker Carlson type, you know, a 1970s version of Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, and her suffering would have been minimized as propaganda, you know, anti-American propaganda. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does it make sense? It makes sense. I understand where you're heading. And I, I'm hesitating because we were living in two Americas then. There was the group that voted for Richard Nixon, believed in Richard Nixon. And then there was the anti-war movement. I understand what you're saying now. And sadly, most likely you're right. Yeah, it's the media portion. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Yes, there, there was a political divide. There was a stark political divide between the pro and anti-Vietnam War uh, factions within America. But the media played it down the middle, more or less. And, Agreed. And the facts around the war were very ugly for America in terms of the suffering of American troops and the devastation being wrought on the Vietnamese people, both North and South. And I'm saying those sets of facts were played out more or less down the middle. I think there's a very good argument, you know, that we can be made that can be made that the Vietnam War, you know, despite the images that were televised, it was still sanitized for America. But we're going to just grant that level of disclosure and say, it, you know, it revealed to Americans the horrors. Imagine if that photograph of Kim had been released in a different media environment. Would she have just been simply dismissed as, uh, as, a, as a propaganda pawn against anti-Americans? I mean, eventually, and the reason I'm, I'm making this argument, because eventually it all comes back to what Americans think about the world, because we live in America. So, you know, can you imagine the media environment, you know, in a polar, in a highly polarized society with divergent media personalities dissecting that image of that poor nine-year-old girl back in 1973? 
The mood I'm in today, I'm gonna to pretend that everything would have worked out and they would have never used a 10-year-old girl for propaganda. How's that? I'll go with that. I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> the world, the, let's, let, we can be honest. The world's an ugly place sometimes. And even sometimes, uh, even suffering that we elevate to, you know, a kind of nobility, eventually, you know, we find ways in which we make it ugly. And I agree with you. And maybe it, for this moment and for this occasion, it might be okay just to say um, it is what it is. And, you know, thanks to her bravery, we see the world in a better place because of her. Yeah, and thanks to her bravery, she saved who she could because we're not doing anything. I mean, she's flying places, getting people. So I want this to be more of a positive. A tribute to her life. Correct. Or we could go back to talking about our favorite drinks. Um, you know what? No, uh, we've, <laughs> we've all, we've always ruined this entire podcast for our guests. Uh, but in reality though, it, it's tough because I, you know, one of the things that you and I always try to do is try to be as honest about our feelings when we're having these discussions. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we have a set of ideas some talking points that we want to discuss, but I think it's also important for both of us to feel, and I, and I know we do this. So I'm more addressing this point for those listening to this podcast is that we diverge. You and I diverge on our views about, you know, some some of these issues. And sometimes, most of the times we agree. But I, I just, I, as we're, as we were having the discussion, you know, I felt that what would have, what would her legacy have been under, you know, a Sean Hannity or a uh, Tucker Carlson. But like you said, let's put that to bed and just celebrate the fact that she's with us and she's a brave and fantastic human being. She's one of those people that I think should make us happy that we are living at this time in history and we get to share the planet with her. Go Nick, go Nick, <laughs> go Nick. No, cynicism is easy. Um, being able to rise above it is hard and we're all human beings. Even with the best of intentions, you know, we're going to fall prey to our lower instincts or base instincts. And it just sometimes takes uh, a little bit of reminding to know that we can do better and we can feel better about each other. I want to tie up tonight's podcast with a quote from Fan that I think is so deeply moving. I am going to read and I don't like to sound like I'm reading, but I was deeply moved by this. And this is the note that I'd like to go out on. She has been quoted, I have carried the results of war on my body. You don't grow out of the scars physically or mentally. I am grateful now for the power of that photograph of me as a nine-year-old and as of the journey I've taken as a person. I can say 50 years later that I'm glad Nick captured that moment, even with all the difficulties that image created for me. That picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil of which humanity is capable. Still, I believe that peace, love, hope, and forgiveness will always be more powerful than any kind of weapon. Let's all hope for that. Please remember to subscribe to The White Bikini and all of your favorite podcast services. And please follow us on Instagram at The White Bikini. We're done. <laughs>